Amen. Thank you. Good morning. If you would turn to um, Luke 21 again, as we continue going through the book of Luke and seek to find some encouragement from God through his word. He's given us his word that we might find encouragement, that we might see him and know him and rest in him in light of all that we're going through and all that lies ahead. And we can be thankful that uh, this book is a book that comes from a heart who loves us infinitely. So we're going to be reading verses 25 through 36, which is the conclusion of our Lord's discussion of the end times. Uh, It's actually an answer to a question posed by the disciples who were wondering what Jesus had in mind when he said, the temple's going to be destroyed, it's going to be wiped out. And he talks about the destruction of the temple, but he also talks about the fact that the destruction of the temple is just a picture of what is yet to come in terms of the judgment of the world at the very end. And we actually see that in this portion of this passage this morning more clearly. Just think about the question, will we know when Jesus comes back or when he is about to come back? As I mentioned last week, eschatology is one of the most difficult things in the Bible, and that's why there's so much disagreement over how to look at what we find in the Bible with regard to the return of Christ. And there are those that I respect that would argue that the next thing on the prophetic calendar is a secret return of Christ and that we won't be able to know when that's going to be. But once that happens and he comes and there's the rapture, then everything else will follow after that. Well, the passage that we're looking at today is what I would say is a problem passage for that view. Uh, All of us have problem passages. Whatever view you take, there are scriptures that don't seem to fit with our particular view. But the emphasis of this passage is on actually being able to anticipate that the return of Christ is very, very near. And so uh, with that in view, I'd like for us to read um, verse 25 through verse 36, and we'll get into this passage this morning. It says in verse 25, Lord Jesus is speaking, and he says, There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth dismay among nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up, And lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. 
but keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Remember, this all started back up in verse 5 when the disciples were leaving the temple with the Lord Jesus and they were pointing out how great and wonderful and beautiful the the temple was. And it was a magnificent building. And Jesus says in verse 6, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. And so it goes on to say in verse 7 that the disciples question Jesus. He says, you know what, this beautiful building that you love and and the Jewish people tend to idolize in various ways, it's actually going to be destroyed. And so uh, we know from other passages that are parallel passages to this passage that four of the disciples uh, asked Jesus privately about what he said. When is this going to happen? And they actually, in the other accounts, uh, we don't have time to turn to those other accounts, but for instance, in Matthew 24, if you went there and you saw how it's phrased there, it, it actually says, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so I would argue that's a very complex question. But in their minds, they thought it was all one thing. In their minds, the destruction of the temple must be associated with the return of Christ and all of his glory, or the coming of Christ and all of his glory, and it must be associated with the end of the age, or the end of uh, this eon as they knew it. Because they couldn't imagine that the temple would be destroyed and everything just continue on. In their mind, it had to be the end of the world. If it's the end of the temple, it must be the end of the world. There must be this new kingdom that's coming right in. And so it was a complex kind of question, which in their minds they saw as happening all at once. Our Lord Jesus gives a complex answer. Because if you read through the account in Matthew and Mark, as well as Luke, you realize that at times Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple And at times he's talking about the end of the world. And how do we know that? For instance, if you look at verse 20 uh, of Luke 21, he says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. And everyone believes that that's a clear reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD when the Romans surrounded the city. And so no one disputes that Jesus was forecasting the actual destruction of the temple. So he is answering their question. He is talking about the destruction of the temple. But in our passage, which we just read, you'll notice that he, he doesn't simply stick with a discussion of what was going to happen in 70 AD because we can see, for instance, in verse 35, he's talking about something that's not simply going to come on Jerusalem or the temple or, or Judea, but on all the face of the earth. So he's talking about events both happening at a particular time with the destruction of the temple, but also happening at the end of time. And so it's a complex answer to a complex question. So he's, at, he's answering the question, what about the temple, and what about your coming, and what about the end of the world? They just thought it was all at one time. So Jesus addresses all of that, and it's helpful for us to realize that 
That's why it's such a challenging passage. That's why sometimes we differ on how to take it, is because he's answering more than one question. But this portion of the discussion uh, focuses on the end of the world aspect rather than the destruction of Jerusalem aspect. And so in verses 25 through 27, you see where it says, in verse 27, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. One of the great hopes of the Christian life is that Jesus is going to come back. Uh, it's just like General MacArthur, you know, in 1942 when he's in the Philippines, he gets run out of the Philippines and he tells the people, I shall return. And two years later, he, he comes back. Well, the Lord Jesus has promised the same thing. And we can read Acts chapter 1, uh, where it tells us that he left the earth and was caught up into a cloud. And the disciples are standing there looking up into heaven, just watching him uh, fade away into the distance. And angels appear and say, why are you standing here looking up into the heavens? Don't you know that just like Jesus was caught up into the cloud and has gone to heaven one day, he's coming back in the same way. And that's what we see reflected here when it says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, in the Old Testament, the cloud was typically uh, an a pointer to the presence of God. Remember, there was a cloud over the tabernacle in the Old Testament. It often pointed to the presence of God, as well as a picture of God's power and God's glory. And so it's a picture of Christ returning. There are those who do this sort of thing, and I take their word for it. They count the various references in the Old Testament of how many times um, the return of Christ is referenced in the Old Testament. And there's according to some 1,845 different references in the Old Testament of the second coming of Christ. With regard to the New Testament, they would argue that one out of every 30 verses refers to the second coming of Christ. And if you compare the verses that talk about the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, the verses that talk about the second coming to Christ are eight times the verses that talk about his first coming. There are many more that talk about the ultimate return of Christ and the ultimate consummation of the things to come than even his first coming. And so it's a huge emphasis in the Bible. It's not just a minor thing, um, which is helpful for me because whenever I think about, if I let's say I never met someone face-to-face and all that I had was their letters, that they had written to their wife or to their kids. How would I get to know that person's heart? I'd sit down and read those letters, and because I couldn't talk to them face-to-face, I would get to know them by what they chose to talk about in those letters. That's how I view the Bible. I don't believe God wastes any words, and I believe when he emphasizes something, it must be important. If he says it more than once or 1,800 times, maybe it's really important for me to really think about and ask myself, has it impacted the way I live my life? If, if this is what's on the heart of God, and if he talks about it so much in his letters to us, so to speak, maybe it should be more on our own minds 
in terms of how we live our lives uh, day in and day out. And that's exactly what Luke is doing here in recording the words of our Lord Jesus, because the Lord Jesus emphasizes that for us in this case. Um, And so the way Luke breaks breaks it down is he starts off talking about the events after the resurrection, then he talks about the events with the destruction of Jerusalem, and then he gets to the events at the end of the world. And in verse 25 and 26, you've got a combination of natural signs, you might call them, and societal signs or responses of people to what is happening. If you just think about what's going on here, he says, signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. The picture is of unusual, shocking things happening. Now, there are those who would say that the, the picture that we have painted here is very similar to a lot of the other ways in the Old Testament we find judgment passages reading. And so some would say it's hard to know whether or not all of this is literal or figurative. Why would he say that? Because in the Old Testament, there are times when it talks about the earth being shaken and the stars falling and that sort of thing. And it's actually talking about changes happening in society, changes happening among nations. It could be both. It could be both changes happening in the world, among nations and society, as well as things happening in uh, the actual physical heavens. I tend to think it could be both. Because what Jesus is saying here is it's going to be such an unusual thing that people are going to be paralyzed by fear. This this isn't going to be just your everyday run-of-the-mill sun, moon, and stars unusual event. This is going to be a unique event at the end of time. And yet how people respond to it is going to be very, very different depending on their place before God and their faith in God. Um, you know, Someone has said that we should read our Bibles, or we should have our Bible in one hand and a newspaper in another hand just to find out what's going on in the world. And I think there's some truth in that. Um, just to try to see what's happening. And there's nothing wrong with comparing what we find in the Bible with what we see in our newspaper, so to speak, if anybody still reads a newspaper. But the idea is, however you're seeing what's going on in the world, it's helpful to ask ourselves, well, do we see that happening in Scripture? Or do we see that being prophesied in Scripture? But I'm wondering if, in light of what we find here, that it doesn't matter whether you have a, a newspaper or not it's going to be very, very apparent that something unusual and actually for a lot of people very terrifying is happening in these events. And so um, you've got a picture painted here right before the return of Christ that unusual things, very frightening things are happening. And Jesus says, Then they will see the Son of Man, in verse 27, coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But his encouragement in verse 28 is to those who are believing in him, there's no need for you to 
faint in fear. There's no, no need for you to be dismayed. There's no need for you to be upset. In fact, you ought to be excited. He says, uh, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, we've been to the Huntington Beach Parade a number of times. And um, typically what happens is when you begin to hear the music way off down the street, people begin to stand up and look down the street to see if they can see the parade coming. They begin to see signs that something's happening, and then they stand up and they begin looking to see what's about to come. That's exactly the picture that's being painted here. Things begin to happen that Jesus says, when you see these things happening, you need to stand up and begin looking because something is on its way. Um, You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to cower in fear. You don't need to faint, even though everybody else around you might be doing that, but might be totally paralyzed by fear. We as believers in Christ should be totally different in seeing what is going on here. Now, another big reason why I believe that what Jesus is talking about here is not your everyday run-of-the-mill types of events that may or may not be uh, something unusual, but it's going to be truly unique, is because of what Jesus does next. He says in verse 29, let me give you an illustration of what I'm telling you is going to happen at the end. And so he says in verse 29, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The... um, The fig tree was one of the sweetest of fruit trees. Obviously, in that day and time, it was very common in Palestine. And in the wintertime, it lost all its leaves. And I believe, we went over to Scott's house the other day, he has a huge fig tree in his backyard, and I don't think there are any leaves on that tree at the moment, right? So, in the wintertime, it's bare, But Jesus says, you know what? You'll know that the season has begun to change, that summer is near, it's not that far away, when the leaves begin to show up on the fig tree. Now Luke adds, and all other trees. In the other, in Matthew and Mark, it just simply says the fig tree. Uh, Luke says, and and other trees are like this too, is basically what he's saying. That they can be bare in the wintertime, but you know that summer is, is near. It's not... You know, 100 years away, uh, it's very, very near because leaves are beginning to appear. And so if you'll notice um, in verse 28, there's the word near at the very end. He says, lift up your heads, your redemption is drawing near. In verse 30, if you see the fig tree putting forth its leaves, you know that summer is now near. Then in verse 31, he says, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. I think he wants us to know that he's talking about something that is going to happen that's going to let you know that the return of Christ is near. That it's not a far-off thing. In the Old Testament, prophecies would be given, and the people began to think, you know what, I know you said this was going to happen, but... 
it's been 50 years and it still hasn't happened. I don't know if it's ever going to happen. So people began to mock the prophets by saying, yeah, 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 we've heard that before. God keeps saying he's going to do that, but it never happens. But Jesus is saying, when these things start to happen, it's going to be very, very soon when Jesus is going to return. And it's meant to be an encouragement. Now, for those of us, and I thought about this this morning, for those of us in America at this moment, this might not be as exciting because we tend to be a lot more comfortable than a lot of other Christians. But if we were in Syria or in China or in other places in the world where it's not so comfortable to be a Christian, we might think more about the second coming of Christ. We might think more about our redemption drawing near. The word redemption obviously means release. It's the idea of being delivered from a fallen world. And it means to have your body experience the the final redemption, the redemption of our bodies, the glorification of our bodies, to be rescued from a fallen world and to get that new glorified body. And so depending on what the shape your body's in, you may or may not long for that kind of redemption. Depending on what your status is in a fallen world and how much you're persecuted and how much you're rejected, you may or may not long for that redemption, rescue from a fallen world, being given a new body. But there are reasons why we go through what we go through, and part of it is God wants us to long to be redeemed, that our, for our bodies to be redeemed, for this world to be redeemed. He doesn't want us to be comfortable here. He doesn't want us to think, you know, it'd be okay if this went on for another thousand years or five thousand years. Now, in one sense, if we're being content in God, yes, that's a good thing. But if we don't really care about being delivered from our sin and seeing this world delivered from its sin, then there's some problems there. So longing to see Jesus come back is a huge thing. And what Jesus says here is meant to encourage us. There's a story about a little boy that had been burned very, very badly, and he was in a hospital. And this hospital had arranged some things with some tutors that would go to the children in the hospital and try to teach them and help them keep up with their schoolwork while they were in the hospital. And so this little boy uh, was a uh, teacher was assigned to this little boy, and the teacher or tutor talked to his teacher, and she said, "You know, if you would, I'd really like for you to help him." with nouns and adverbs. That's what we're going over in class. And so if you ask his tutor while he's in the hospital, could just help him learn about nouns and adverbs, he won't be as far behind. And so she goes in, and uh, they didn't tell her ahead of time that he'd been terribly burned. And she was kind of shocked. She kind of stammered through the lesson and and left that day and, and went back the next day. And the nurse met her and said, what did you do yesterday? And she immediately began to apologize and said, you know, I'm sorry. I'm just a little shocked by his condition. I I know I probably didn't do a very good job. And she said, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that there's been an amazing change in this boy since you came yesterday. And she said, what do you mean? This little boy wasn't responding well to the treatments. It It wasn't like he really even wanted to live anymore. But since you came as of yesterday... He's beginning to respond very much better to the treatments, and he seems to have a whole different attitude. 
Well, a couple of weeks after that, uh, they began talking to the little boy and they asked him, you know, what happened? And he said, you know, I just realized that they wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy, would they? So he basically found hope in the midst of his suffering through a sign. There's a a sign being given to me that, okay, I'm not going to die. I'm going to live. And so what Jesus is saying here is there's going to be some definite signs that life is is what's being promised to you and is going to be given to you very, very soon. You may be suffering here and now. It may be painful. But you know what? Uh, Deliverance is on the way. Redemption is on the way. And there are signs that will indicate that that is about to happen. And so you've got this um, sign of hope that Jesus pictures in terms of the fig tree. He says there are things that are going to happen that are going to let you know that things are about to radically change in this fallen world, and things are going to radically change for you as a believer in Christ, wherever you find yourself. Now, one of the big questions in all this is how to take verse 32, which says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. There are a lot of people who read this verse and believe that that means that everything Jesus has said up to this point in this discourse, has to be fulfilled within that generation that heard Jesus say this. And that's why a lot of people would argue that that what Jesus says in the Gospels about um, the destruction of the temple is only about the destruction of the temple for the most part. There may be some of it that points to the end, but most of it is, is just about uh, the destruction of the temple because they would say generation refers to those who are alive when Jesus is speaking. A generation was about 40 years or so. A lot of people have tried to figure out other ways it might could be taken because of the the etymology of the word, and some would say it is talking about the idea of race, a race of disciples. Uh, Some would say it has to do with the existence of the Jewish nation, that the Jewish people are going to be here until the end of the world, that they're not going to be destroyed, even though it appears... Different times in history, people have tried to destroy the Jewish people. Uh, others would say it's as, as broad as mankind. Uh, there's, there's just all kinds of ways that people try to understand what in the world was Jesus saying because there are unbelievers who would say, see, Jesus was wrong. He said that all these things were going to happen in a generation, that he was going to come back, that all these things were going to happen within 40 years of their lifetime, and it didn't happen. So Jesus was wrong, therefore Jesus was a false prophet. That's the implication of how you understand what what is Jesus saying here when he says all this is going to happen in a generation or that this generation will not pass away. Why I believe the best way to take it is in the, the immediate context as he's talking about the parable of the fig tree. And he's saying that when the leaves come forth, you know that summer is near. And he's saying that when these events that I just told you about in association with my return, beginning in verse 25, signs and sun and moon and stars and earth and all of that, when those things start to happen, the generation that sees that begin will see it end. 
it will happen. It will be near. It's not going to be a thousand more years before that happens. It's going to be near, just like summer is near when the leaves are put out. So the return of Christ is really, really near to that generation that begins to see these things take place. I think that's the best way to understand it in its context so that Jesus is saying um, there are some signs that are so obvious that as my believers you will know that my return is very near and it will be in your lifetime assuming that you're not 95 and about to die and that kind of thing. It will be very, very soon. And so um, it's meant to encourage us in light of what he goes on to say. And what he says in verse 34 is, in light of all these things, be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. Um, there's a story about a, um, a town in Maine, and you can actually go there, and you can if you go to a place called Flagstaff Lake, you can see where there used to be a town. And there's a, a dam close to Flagstaff Lake in Maine. And um, they decided to enlarge the lake. And there was a town nearby um, that was going to be basically submerged under um, because of the enlarging of the lake. And so they told the people that town that they were going to do that. And that, and as a result, all the improvements on the town stopped. Nobody fixed anything in town. Nobody made any improvements. Nobody did anything to keep anything up because they knew in a few months it was all going to be underwater. And so as someone has said, week by week, the whole town became more and more bedraggled, more gone to seed, more woebegone. And someone said about that, it's a good illustration of the principle where there is no faith in the future there is no power in the present. It's another way of saying, if I am not focused on the return of Christ, then it may actually undermine the way I live my life today as I should. That's the application. If God talks so much about that day, when Jesus will come back, he will judge the living and the dead. He will establish his kingdom. The new world to come will be here. If God talks so much about that in so many different ways, then it must be because it's really important for me to be able to live my life now in a way that really is pleasing to God. That there is power in the present to be had by a focus on the future. And if there is that focus on the future, it's going to inhibit my power in the present to live like God wants me to live. And I think that's the basis for Jesus' exhortation when he says, be on your guard, uh, keep on the alert. Um, what's interesting to me is the implication, if you read through this carefully and you think through it, is that it's kind of like evolution. Everybody has the same... Um, evidence to go on. Everybody sees the same um, rocks, rocks and strata and various things, but people come to different uh, conclusions about what that means. Will everyone see the same things that Christians are seeing? Yes. 
Their response will be fear. Jesus says, your response should be looking for what's going to happen, but aware of the fact that uh, not everyone around you is going to see it the same way. And so the encouragement is to be on the alert. Um, He actually uses the word um, that means to chase sleep away. One of the things that's interesting here is that the idea of people seeing things but not connecting them to the return of Christ is that it's pictured as being asleep. And Jesus is essentially saying, do not be sleepers. Don't be asleep to what is happening. Stay alert. Um, The idea of being weighted down is being insensitive to what is going on. It's interesting in Mark 14, when Jesus is praying, and the disciples are waiting for Jesus. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says they fall asleep, that their eyes are heavy. It's the same idea as Jesus says, don't let your spiritual eyes get heavy, so to speak, and weighed down with either pleasures. The idea of drunkenness or dissipation is hang- a hangover after being drunk. That's the idea of pursuit of pleasure. Obviously, the worries of life have to do more with the painful side. He says, don't let, whether it's the pleasures of life or the pain of life, cause you to become insensitive to the day that is coming, the return of Christ. No matter how far it is in the future, make sure that you chase away the sleepiness, the sleepiness of being insensitive to there is a day coming where we will have to stand before Jesus and give an account of our lives. And so he says, be on guard and be careful of allowing yourself to go to sleep. Um, In other passages in Mark 24, um, Jesus uses the idea of the days of Noah, where everyone was doing their own thing, and the, the flood came and caught them unawares. All itself for Noah and his family. They were aware of what's coming, what was coming, and they prepared for it. Well, let me just make some application here and we'll wrap up here for this morning. On the one hand, um, some people do too much sign looking. They're always looking for signs of Christ coming back or signs of um, the end and, and that kind of thing. And yet it's very difficult to um, read exactly what's going to happen in terms of certain kinds of signs. It's kind of like um, the guy who stands by the road and he holds up a sign that says the end is near and cars are driving by and they're just yelling at him, you're, you know, you're crazy, you're crazy. And they drive on down the road and hear a big splash and screech and they just ran off you know, into a lake or something. And what they meant to say was, oh, the bridge is out. Oh, so that's what you meant. You meant the bridge was out. Not the end, uh, I didn't know what you were talking about. So um, it can be really challenging uh, to figure out, is the end near or not? Uh, Martin Luther and others thought the end was near. Well, I've come to the conclusion that uh, if, if there's any doubt about it, it's probably not near. Because Jesus talks so confidently about these events, he seems to be talking in such a way that says, oh, well, I'm not talking about things that you can easily confuse with, oh, this is just another 
earthquake. This is another event in the heavens. This is another thing that's happened over and over and over again. This is something unique. And I believe that whereas there can be a way in which we look for signs all the time of Jesus coming back and we can actually be um, caught up in things that make us very unproductive. And there are a lot of people that have been caught up in that. There's another sense in which Jesus is saying, it's going to be like the fig tree. It's going to go from no leaves to leaves. Not from, not from um, brown leaves to green leaves. No leaves to leaves. It's going to be a stark contrast. And therefore, he calls us to look, to watch, to look forward to the day when things begin to radically change and we begin to know the one who has loved me is about to show up. And we long for that day, we look forward to that day, and we look for the signs of that day happening. And what he says is, he says in verse 36, he says, uh, keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things. Is that really necessary? Now, if we if we simply um, take a truth and see how well we can misapply it, we could say, you know, God's sovereign, and um, if he saved me, he saved me. I'll be okay. That would be a misapplication of the truth that, yes, it is true that if we're saved, we're saved. We're never going to be lost. But never take a truth and cancel out what Jesus says. That would be like saying, yeah, he said pray that I have strength to to make it through all of this and and remain trusting in him and remain loving as he calls me to. But you know what? God's sovereign. I'll be okay. Never, never. Never do that because the evidence that we are born again is that we take seriously the words of Jesus. We just don't say, ah, that's, I can take it or leave it. No, we, we, hear, we hear our Lord say, you need to pray. You need to pray for strength. You need to pray for understanding, discern the times. I, I entitled this, uh, three-part series, Signs of the Times. Jesus actually uses that phrase in Matthew 16, where he's talking to the Pharisees and saying, you guys can read the weather. Can't you discern the signs of the times? And they couldn't. They couldn't discern the signs of the times in Jesus' first coming because they basically refused to do so. They didn't want him to be who he said he was. But Jesus is encouraging us to discern the signs of the times and recognize that um, life is hard and we need to pray for strength. We need to pray for discernment. We need to pray for understanding of what is going on around us. And we need to, to recognize we need to be like the man, I mentioned him before, that was in prison. He was actually in a Soviet camp, prison camp. And he was praying, he was a believer, and somebody came up and said, you know what, you can pray as long as you want, but you'll never get out of here. And he looked up at him and said, you know what, I'm not praying to get out of here. I'm praying to do the will of God in here. And that's what Jesus is saying, pray to stay faithful. Pray for grace to keep trusting me, and in no matter how bad it gets. Pray for grace to keep loving the people in, in your life, no matter how bad it gets. Pray for that strength. 
pray for me. Anytime you pray for God's grace, you're praying for God to show up in your life. God's grace isn't something separate from him. God's grace is him. You're asking for God to be in you all that you need him to be. Well, the last thing is simply to highlight what he says at the very end. He says, Pray that you'll have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. What does it mean to stand before the Son of Man? Son of Man was a phrase that Jesus used over and over again, and I think he used it because a lot of people had no idea what he was talking about. And therefore, um, it didn't give them cause to do things that uh, he didn't want them to do, like try to make him king and stuff like that. But it was a very, very important um, concept out of Daniel chapter 7, because the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 is given authority over all things. And he rules and reigns over everything. So in Jesus' mind, he was communicating very clearly who he was, even though they weren't sure what he was talking about. But he says, um, make sure that you can stand before the Son of Man. Um, How do you do that? I'm running out of time here, so let me just point to one verse that came to mind. There's a lot of verses that talk about standing, but in Romans 5... It says, the very beginning, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. So the question is, how do you stand before the Son of Man? You receive the Son of Man for who he is. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? That he's fully God and fully man? Do you believe that he did what he said he was going to do? Uh, That he was going to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf and that he was going to die in our place? And believe that he rose from the dead and that he saves all those who entrust themselves to him? That's how you stand before the Son of Man. But it goes beyond that because... When he says stand before the Son of Man, he means stand before someone who has endured to the end. You'll notice um, earlier in the chapter in Luke 21, he actually says um, in verse 19, by your endurance you will gain your lives. What does he mean by that? He means that the evidence that we are truly his and that we're truly trusting him is that we will endure, we will make it through whatever tribulation comes upon this earth before he returns. And that's why we pray. We pray for grace to continue trusting him and continue being faithful to love in the ways he calls us to. And he says, we will, by his grace, stand. End of Jude, um, he is the one who is able to make us stand before him with joy. And that's what Jesus is encouraging us to keep in mind. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would just help us to find encouragement through this, that there are wonderful and great and magnificent things about to happen at some point in history. And one way or the other, we're going to be a part of that. And I pray that you'd help us to keep our eyes on what you've promised and that you would encourage us 
to live faithfully to you and to rest in all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.